You're listening to Vet Candy. Okay, we'd like to pause right there because yeah. I don't know if this connection between you and I is bad for audiovisual, but it sounds like what you said was that Misty had gone through a full cycle in the washing machine. Is that what happened? Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Credelio for Cats. Welcome to the Vet Mysteries Podcast. My name is Dr. Courtney. I'm a board-certified veterinary surgeon and fiercely devoted to pet and animal health. This podcast is powered by Vet Candy, a multimedia platform offering diverse veterinary content produced by veterinary experts and key opinion leaders. In this podcast, we unravel some of the most baffling and fascinating cases in clinical veterinary medicine. Please let us know how you feel about these cases. You can find us on socials at Dr. Courtney DVM and at My Vet Candy. Now, let's get started. Today, we are going to be talking about a case that had me captivated the moment I heard why the cat presented to the hospital. This case, and particularly the treatment for it, is pretty mysterious. We are joined by the great Dr. Hemmelgarn. Welcome, Dr. Hemmelgarn, to the Vet Mysteries Podcast. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm excited to share a case. Let's just start with you introducing yourself. I am a veterinary criticalist. I mainly practice emergency and critical care. I will see the door, but I also manage our intensive care unit. I am based out of New Jersey. I am originally, though, from Utah, and that's where I grew up. I knew from a very early age, as many veterinarians that go into this, that I wanted to go into veterinary medicine. So honestly, I, I don't think I looked into anything else that I wanted to do. I sort of knew always that that was what my interest was. But I definitely didn't know what aspect I wanted to do. And as I went through vet school and did an internship, I realized how much I love sort of the, the crazy cases that came in on emergency and critical care. And I, I really did love what impact I felt I could provide to our profession, but also to families and their pets being a criticalist. And that's what really prompted me to go further in doing a residency and, and to do what I do now. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. anything to protect the special bond between you and your cat. Now is the time to ask your veterinarian about Credelio Cat Lodal Honor. Protect your cat and stay Credelio close. This is a Vet Mysteries podcast, so help us demystify what exactly a veterinary criticalist is. So to take it back a few steps, and so it is really interesting in our veterinary profession that there is lots of different roads that you can take after graduating from vet school. And so unlike human medicine, you can go immediately into practice and start practicing immediately upon graduating from vet school, or you can pursue further training to become a little bit more specialized and have a little bit smaller niche of what you want to be an expert at. Dr. Hemmelgarn took us back to basics to help us understand the steps along the challenging journey of becoming a specialist. And so the first step is always doing an internship that's a year of exploring all different specialties in whether you want to do small animal or large animal or work with lab animals or zoo medicine and, and really looking at what all aspects you could potentially look to pursue 
And then if you find something that really you find interesting and you really want to look into that further, you go down the road of doing a residency. And a residency is an additional three years of more intense training in that particular avenue. In veterinary medicine, there are lots of different specialties. She took a moment to describe the trifecta of expertise that powers her as a veterinary criticalist. I am a small animal emergency and critical care specialist which means that I did advanced training in both cases that come in through the emergency room and getting a good idea of how to handle those, also helping and facilitating training emergency doctors and interns and other doctors that are coming into the field. And lastly, the other part of it is critical care, which involves taking those cases that have been seen through emergency or taking the cases that have come from the surgery service or the internal medicine service and the ones that are really, really sick and they need the most help and focusing on what their needs are and focusing on how to get them through some of the most toughest situations. And so commonly, as a criticalist, you will have a lot of the cases in the intensive care unit and you're the one that's managing them. You're also ones that potentially are dealing with them if they need to go on a mechanical ventilator or have a machine help them breathe for them. Um, there are some criticalists that now are exploring going down the road of doing things like dialysis and helping to support animals that are in kidney failure. And so it's really working on, on sort of the sickest of the sickest. Mechanical ventilators, dialysis, the toughest situations. We are going to talk about a toughest situ- a really tough situation in a second. Because this is a Vet Mysteries podcast, what's something mysterious about you? Hmm, something that's very intriguing. I think people always do find it interesting that an uncommonly known fact about myself is that I'm from Utah and that I am I'm not from this area of New Jersey, although since I graduated vet school, I've been here the whole time. And so I do consider myself now a New Jerseyan, but that it isn't something that I grew up and not something, but I did grow up um, in a very different area than where I am now. Dr. Hemelgarn unraveled a bit of her mysteriousness by describing her love of endurance athletics. So that is also true. I do very, very much love running. And so it is something that has I didn't think would ever be something I was into. I never did it really growing up and that I really picked it up in vet school. And I, there were some people that had started a running group in vet school and I thought I would give it a whirl and I would try it and that I ended up really loving it. And it's been one of the things that's been able to keep me in my mind the most sane through everything I've gone through is really being able to sort of escape and be able to do something that's completely on what I do on a normal daily basis. And so it is something that I really, really enjoy. But we're here to talk about a really important and fascinating case you had. Give us a window into what you saw that day. Set the scene for us. I was working as a crit- on one of my critical care shifts and we had what we call a stat triage in our field, and that is essentially a pet that comes in through the emergency service that is deemed highly unstable or the owners have given us an indication that there is something going on with them that could be very concerning. And so some examples of a stat triage is anything that's considered to have trouble breathing, anything that's had something traumatic, like being hit by a car, fallen out of a window, anything that's got lots of bleeding associated is considered to be moved up to our most critical and should be evaluated first by our emergency doctors. So our emergency doctor that day was actually seeing another case. Dr. Hemelgarn describes what she enjoys about the thrill of the unexpected. I was prepared for it when it came into the back. We didn't know that this pet was coming through an emergency service 
and that's some of the appeal. And some people would see a downside of emergency medicine is you don't really know what will ever walk through the door. Now, Dr. Hamilgram, who this- alerts you to this stat triage? You get this call, you get this this alarm. Somebody sounds the alarm and says, Dr. Hamilgram, we have a mm-hmm. stat triage. Who is that individual? Um, that individual will be one of our really trained receptionists. And so during this case actually happened during um, more of our intense times during COVID. And so we weren't allowing owners to come into the building at the time. So someone had called from the parking lot and alerted our receptionist. They were here and they were here with their cat. And so they addressed what had gone on with the cat and the cat, the receptionist realized that that was something that should be called as a very serious emergency. And so they paged it overhead. One of our technicians or our nurses immediately goes out to the owner's car and brings the pet in immediately so we can evaluate it and try to stabilize it. She goes on to discuss the importance of having a well-trained and attentive veterinary receptionist team. Our receptionists are really good at knowing code words of what things should be ringing that really serious bell. And so they're really our first line defense of being able to alert how quickly we need to get somebody to that, to that pet and their family. What was this cat's name? Um, so this cat's name is Misty, and she was a two-year-old Persian. Two-year-old female Persian. She comes to you, mm-hmm. comes through the door in a stat triage. Number one, what's going through your head? Um, so the first thing that we always w- worry about and the things that I always break down in my head is, is certain things. Are they having trouble breathing? Do we need to get supplemental oxygen prepared for them? Are they bleeding? Is it something we need to try to figure out where they're bleeding from and how to stop that? Are they in shock? Do we need to try to start stabilizing them with fluids? And sometimes we don't know that right away. Sometimes the owners will give us a really good idea that, hey, they're having trouble breathing and I know that they had a heart condition. And so sometimes we have a little better idea. Dr. Hemmelgarn describes exactly what happened to Misty. This cat had no previous medical problems. And the owners did, which is not the mystery of this case, but the owners did have a very good idea of what had happened to Misty. And so Misty's main problem that she presented for is that unfortunately she had gone through a full cycle in the washing machine. Okay, we'd like to pause right there because I don't know if this connection between you and I is bad for audiovisual, but it sounds like what you said was that Misty had gone through a full cycle in the washing machine. Is that what happened? Yeah. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hey, this is Omar Lopez. And Eric Meyer. And we want you to check out our new podcast, Working Class, where two lawyers from opposite sides of the law discuss the hottest employment issues today from both the employee and the employer perspective. Check us out on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting platform. So Misty comes through the door. You hear the call, the uh, receptionist says, we have a stat triage. And as Misty comes through the door, you're assessing her. You want to know if she has any trouble breathing. How does Misty look the moment you see her? Unfortunately, Misty didn't look that good. So she was unable to stand. She was what we would call laterally recumbent. So she was laying on her side. She was conscious that she she clearly was not fully aware of what was going on and that she was having a lot of trouble breathing. 
Dr. Hemmelgarn describes to us one very clear way to tell if a cat is having trouble breathing. One of the things that always alerts us to cats particularly that's having trouble breathing is that cats should never pant like a dog. And so if you ever see a cat that's panting and has that open mouth panting that you would assess normally as a dog's normal thing, that's something that always gives you an indication that something's not right with a cat's respiratory tract and cats should never do this panting. And it's something that if cats are doing panting, that's a big red flag in my mind that we've got a, we've got a very large problem going on. Oh my goodness. So she's panting. She's laterally recumbent, lying on her side. She's responsive. Is she responding to any of your stimuli at this point? She's very distressed by the situation and that she is looking around, but she is, she's not acting exactly like a cat that's in an emergency room. As Misty is laying in front of you, what are you seeing? Um, so the things that you're noticing is that she's breathing much more rapidly than what she had and it's much more shallow than what you would normally expect. So instead of her taking a nice deep breath and her chest wall really expanding and getting her lungs completely full and taking that nice deep breath and allowing our body to do all the fun oxygen transport that it normally does, instead she's making those really short shallow breathing which either gives you an indication of a few things. So that can be a sign of pain. So if cats or dogs or us are in pain, it can make us breathe really rapid and shallow, sort of hyperventilating. It can give us an indication that there's something structurally going on in the lungs that's preventing them from expanding fully as they normally should. And lastly, there you can also see if there is something going on in their mouth or their nose that's preventing them from being able to breathe normally, that could also cause them to do this sort of shallow, short, shallow breathing. Short, shallow breathing, disoriented, she's in bad condition. Veterinarians, mm-hmm. pet lovers, pet parents, they're just looking at this cat in distress thinking, what do we do now? What was the next step? And so interestingly, I I have been out of vet school for some time period. And that interestingly enough, this really was the only cat I've ever seen that's actually gone through this. Um, I have this seen a few very cats first that have time gone. ever seeing a cat go through a, an entire wash cycle in the washing machine. Yeah. And so even you, despite being an amazing criticalist and expert criticalist, be specializing in critical care, even you were thinking, wow, this is the very first time I'm ever seeing this. It's exciting, but it's also sometimes a little nerve-wracking because you're not exactly sure what's ahead of you. Or Sometimes you see the same emergencies very commonly, and it's the old hat, and you know exactly what to do for them. And sometimes you see something come in, and it's completely new to you, and you sort of have to look at it and look at it really objectively and trying to figure out what are all the possible things that could have happened to this cat going through that washing cycle and what are potentially affecting her right now. And so some of the big things that we were worried about is her breathing, sort of how conscious and aware she is. So the next step is we always talk about doing their vitals. And so their vitals give us an indication of what their temperature is, what their heart rate is, again, what their respiratory rate and effort is. Are they nice and pink? Is their color nice and double gum pink as you would expect? And then we sort of move on after we get their vitals. That can also include a blood pressure. Then we go down the rest of our physical exams. As Dr. Helmogarn begins to describe her nose-to-tail physical exam, she lets us know one thing that really stuck out to her. On Misty's vitals, her temperature was very low. Our normal temperature for a cat we consider is about 99 to 1025, and hers was less than 96 degrees when she came in. 
she had an increased respiratory rate and effort and that her gum color or the area in her mouth and her tongue that should be nice and bubblegum pink was very pale and almost a little blue or cyanotic on her exam. Oh my goodness. She's pale. She's laying on her side, shallow breathing, cold. What's her muscular tone right now? Does she have any sort of muscular tone or is she sort of limp and, and, and listless? Yeah, she's pretty, she's pretty limp right now. She's limp right now. And as you, as a criticalist, you just did, your, your, you just did Misty's vitals. What are your vitals? Is your heart pounding right now trying to save Misty? I think that it, it's something that I'm nervous for her. I'm nervous for her family. And in my head, there's a lot of things going on. I'm thinking, what is the next steps I want to direct my team to try to help her? And sort of what expectations do I want to set her family up for? What expectations do I want to send them up for? Do I want to set them up that I don't think there's any chance of her making it through this? Do I want to set them up for the chance that there is a chance she can make it and sort of how we need to do and what the next steps are. And so part of this together is working with your team and creating a really good plan for your team. And that one of the things that comes with experience and comes with time in this field is being able to sort of suppress that feeling in your head that says, wow, I've never seen this before. I don't know what to do. And sort of take it step by step and direct your team because also your team has never seen this before. And sort of taking that step back and asking very guided information to your team. We begin to talk about the initial steps for stabilizing a patient in critical condition. One of the first steps we always do in cases when pets present with really serious emergencies is we place an IV catheter so that we're able to give them medications. But if worst case scenario were to happen and their heart were to stop or if they were to stop breathing, we're able to start doing CPR immediately on them. So we always place an IV catheter and we started to provide heat support for her. So heat support in veterinary medicine, the most common way we will give pets that is we have something that's called a bear hugger, and that is a blanket that has holes in it that blows hot air into that blanket, and then those little holes allow that hot air to go over our pets, and then it allows them to get warm by surrounding them by nice warm air. And you can wow. adjust how hot that temperature is. That's incredible because a lot of us are thinking about a bear hugger. They thinking in terms of a B-A-R hugger, like a grizzly bear. But when you talk, when we mm-hmm. talk about bear hugger, what we're talking about is almost think of it like this uh, air mattress or hot air balloon where you've got a bunch mm-hmm. of different holes in it and where they can just be surrounded in this cozy ambient warmth. And do you find, do you find that the, the bear hugger works best when Misty's laying on top of the bear hugger or if you place the bear hugger over her like you're putting a comforter like your grandmother just knitted you over her body yeah the best way it works is almost in sort of a tent fashion what you're describing so it works best if they have a blanket underneath them you put them on top of the blanket you put the bear hugger air blanket over the top and then another blanket over it so basically traps that nice warm air surrounding them at all times and allows that air to basically warm them up the big thing is that you always just want to make sure is that obviously if they are very sick and they can't get up is that we monitor their temperatures very closely during this because if they get to a normal temperature or we warm them up too much, they can't get away from that air. And so it's something whenever pets are getting heat support, we always really want to make sure that we're not getting them too hot because it's one of those things that especially in Misty's case, she wouldn't have been able to get away to a cooler surface if she was getting too hot. 
So Misty now has an IV catheter. She's surrounded by a team. Mm-hmm. There's a bear hugger on her. She's receiving uh, fluids at this point or what sort of steps now in terms of treatment after this poor precious cat has yeah. just gone through the washing machine? Are you, are you and your team starting to take now? So her blood pressure was low. So we did give her what we call a fluid bolus or a bolus of IV fluids to try to get her blood pressure to come up. And the next steps are when they place the IV catheter, we always get a little bit of blood work when we place that. And so that blood work normally allows us to do things like checking their blood sugar, checking to see what their red blood cell count is, and sometimes even a little bit of electrolytes, their sodium and electrolytes, sodium and potassium in that situation. And so my first steps were to try to get our blood pressure a little bit better and then for us to be able to get her to the radiology suite to take x-rays of her lungs so I could try to get an idea if there was actually truly something going on in her lungs or whether this was secondary to pain or whether this is secondary to shock her breathing. And then once we had those x-rays, the plan was to get her into an area where she could receive extra oxygen to try to help her. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hello, this is Caitlin Palmer. You probably know me as the desk wench. You know, the sweet TikTok receptionist who has to deal with the evil Karen Stevens. Well, if you like that, you are going to love my new podcast, Desk Wench Confessions. On my show, I have funny guests who tell me about their own Karens. Plus, we have contests, giveaways, and skits. Trust me, you are going to love it. Check it out on a podcast platform of your choice on Vet Candy Radio. Dr. Hemelgarn goes on to describe the challenges related to giving cats supplemental oxygen. So it's always difficult sometimes to imagine how pets would get oxygen because in our world and in human world, we lay in a nice bed in the hospital and we have nasal prongs that go in our nose and they flip over our ears and we don't bother them and it works great and that cats haven't really got the memo that that would be helpful for them to do and so cats are not going to tolerate to have anything on their face and sometimes it's even a little bit more distressing for them and so we've created a way to provide oxygen for pets and what we do is we call it an oxygen cage and it's a box that has two doors that open and that box is able to be temperature controlled noise controlled there's lights in it and it's basically able to that whatever temperature we want it to be, whatever humidity we want it to be, it can actually be a little bit warmer than ambient temperature, especially in Misty's case, to help to continue to warm her up, and that it will provide extra oxygen. So normal room air has an oxygen concentration of 21%, and this oxygen cage can go up to 40%. So it adds about an additional 20% of oxygen for her to be able to inhale. It's incredible. I'm picturing Misty. And for those who aren't familiar with basically an oxygen cage is picture like a magician going into a clear plastic box and sealing themselves in the box. And then they shroud that plastic box with a curtain. And once they remove the curtain, there's no person there. That would be a classic magician trick. In this case, there is no magic trick. It is all about providing oxygen support almost from 20% to 40, doubling the amount of oxygen that's available from room air. And once you place them in that oxygen cage, there's 
ports at which you can actually access Misty, right? And so you've got this blood work. Mm -hmm. The blood work is a mystery in itself in deciphering what's actually happening in her body. And so at this point, now that you've placed her in oxygen and giving her that support, what are you thinking as far as what's the next steps for Misty? Yeah, so the next step was me to take an x-ray. So after we got her set up and like in a little better place, I went and looked at her x-rays. And so on her x-rays, she had very severe what we call pulmonary infiltrates in all of her lungs. So what that means is that on her x-rays, her lungs were much whiter and much brighter than what they should be. They should be almost a sort of a dark grayish color because they should be full of air. And when they aren't full of air and they're full of liquid, which we can see with things like what we call pulmonary edema, they get very white and they don't tend to allow for oxygen transport very well. And so there's a few reasons running through my head of why her lungs could look like that. And so one of the things that I was worried about is could have she aspirated the water from the washer? Soapy water. Aspirating soapy water. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And so one of the things we worry about and what we call aspiration is aspiration is when we inhale fluid into our lungs that shouldn't be there. And so that that was one of the things that I was worried about is this poor cat going through this whole washing cycle is that she's surrounded by all of that water. And if at any point she sucked it up her nose or swallowed it and it went into her lungs, we could see that. That also makes me really worried because that water isn't just water. That water, depending on where in the cycle she would have aspirated it, that water has some version of a detergent in it. There's also a possibility it could have had bleach. Any of that could have been in it. And also then we worry about, is it hot water? And so most loads of laundry that we do don't aren't on cold cycles. And so... Was this really, really hot water that she aspirated? And so all of those things are making me worried. Dr. Hemmelgarn explains how hitting your head or head trauma could result in fluid accumulation in the lungs. But also there's other reasons that that she could have fluid in her lungs. And that can be something that we call non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. And that can happen if she had gotten head trauma. So if we imagine her going through the spin cycle, she could have very much hit her head during that process and that she could have had head trauma. And when you have head trauma, sometimes you can develop fluid in your lungs that shouldn't normally occur there. And so all of these things were reasons that made me worried and wondered how I was going to go about treating this. And so minimally, we knew that we had to treat her with supplemental oxygen as she's been getting. And we also needed to potentially cover her with broad-spectrum antibiotics because if there was any chance that this was water that had detergent or potentially even if she had vomited during this process and had aspirated it, there's a chance that there could be bacteria in the fluid in her lungs. And so in that regard, we also have to look and we have to treat her supportively for that. And then once we gave her a little bit of time, we gave her a couple of hours just try to see that we didn't really want to stress her out any more than we needed to. And we really just needed her body to focus on getting warm, getting her blood pressure better, and getting that oxygen into our system. During this, during a this couple hour, hours, this is truly a waiting game because you're wondering, is yeah. she going to decline? Is she going to decompensate? Is she going to sort of, is her body 
going to essentially sort of mount a response? Is she going to show improvement minute by minute, hour by hour? And so during this two hour period where you're just saying you just we want to focus on increasing her temperature, watching to see what kind of clinical signs and symptoms she's ex- exhibiting when you're doing this for two hours. How is Misty during that two hours? Does she stay the same? Is she better or is she worse? Um, she's a little bit, yeah, she's a little bit brighter as the time is going on. She's still breathing very heavy. Her color is not amazing, but she is starting to look like she's aware more of where her surroundings are. She's starting to actually be able to like stand up and look around a little bit more. Um, so after a couple of hours, we got her out and I we took a look at her and we did a physical exam. It's always important to reassess what's going on because things really can change. And she was actually at that time, I was able to get a really good look in her mouth. And one of the things that we noted is unfortunately she had burns all along the top of her mouth and all along her tongue. And so I don't know if those burns came from hot water or if there's a chance that she could have potentially actually had exposure of the metal in the washing machine to her mouth um, or that there's also obviously the chance that she could have potentially like bit down or bit on her tongue or any of that that could have caused these ulcers in her mouth that we were seeing. And so when you're looking at these ulcers in the mouth and you were immediately thinking thermal burns, was there any chance in your Mm -hmm. mind that they could have been chemical burns from the detergent? There's every, we, that was definitely on the radar. The fact that they were sort of more isolated and not her whole mouth made me a little less worried about things like chemical, where you would have thought if it was chemical, it would have burned her whole mouth. But any of these things are, are possibilities when we're dealing with a, when a, a situation like that. Sure. As you're looking at her, a lot of people are listening right now like, poor Misty, this is unbelievable. You just made it through an entire cycle in a washing machine. The Mm -hmm. first thing that comes to my mind or a lot of people's mind is the, the last cycle of the washing machine, which is the spin cycle and how as kids, we used to put our forehead on a baseball bat, put it on the ground and then spin in circles to kind of play with our vestibular apparatus. And we'd be busy and stumbling and we try to do things knowing that we purposely made ourselves dizzy, but a spin cycle, that's no joke. That is the ultimate dizziness of dizziness. And poor Misty, was she twirling or rolling or did you see any changes to her balance or vestibular apparatus? Luckily, no. Like, she really didn't have any vestibular signs at all. That's excellent. The good news is, is that over the next 24 hours, she continued to make really good signs. So she still was in oxygen. She was getting all of her medications, but she was actually starting to act more like a cat. So she was getting up, she was moving around, and shockingly to all of us, which Truly, cats are very mysterious in themselves that she was actually wanting to start to try to eat and actually start to get some nutrition into her system within the first 24 hours of her being in the hospital, which is which is amazing because one of the things that we had prepped the owners for is that if she lived through her initial injuries with these burns in her mouth, there was a chance that she very much would not have wanted to eat on her own. And in those cases, we end up having to talk about things like feeding tubes, doing all of that and and Misty had a much different idea of what she wanted to have done and she was very clear with me that she did not want to have a feeding tube placed. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Cordelio Cat Lodaloner protects your cat from ticks and fleas so you can be close. Credelio Close. 
the first and only of its kind. It's a small, tasty chewable that's easy to give. Lotolaner is a member of the isoxazoline class of drugs. The most common side effects are weight loss, rapid breathing, and vomiting. This drug class has been associated with neurological adverse reactions. Use with caution on cats with a history of seizures. Keep your cat close. Credelio close. Some of us are familiar with the medical term problem list, which is defined as the most important health problems a patient is experiencing. What problems did you see on Misty's blood work that contributed to her problem list? So the big things on her blood work is that she had an elevated white cell count, and we didn't know at the time whether that was from inflammation, that was from what had happened to her lungs. Her kidney values were also elevated, and that was one of the things that was definitely high on my concern list, is that my concern was that potentially they had suffered a a thermal injury. And so that's something that we can see in tests that go through a heat stroke episode where they get really hot, that that heat itself can cause thermal damage to their kidneys. And so it did make me really worried that the kidneys could potentially have had an insult secondary to the heat of heat it. And so those were the... Excellent point. Excellent. That was one of the things that was definitely on our radar. And, and also, again, because Misty was a very lucky girl, those her kidney values continued to improve with time and continued over the couple of days that she was in our hospital, those kidney values continued to improve. And whether there was some thermal injury, at least luckily it was something that was reversible in her case. Un, un, so right now, picturing her as she was in the oxygen cage, how many hours did she spend in oxygen? And then when did she come out? After she came out, were you pretty much happy with the fact that she was improving on fluid therapy alone? So she was in oxygen for about 48 hours before she was out. So she was hospitalized at least for two days in our ICU before we tried her out of oxygen. And she, she, she was very clear by the time we had taken her out that she was breathing very comfortably. Her oxygenation had improved when we were monitoring it. She was doing all of the things we needed her to do and she was eating and she was very comfortable. So she came out of oxygen. We kept her for another 24 hours in the hospital for monitoring and to make sure again, all of her blood work continued to normalize and that we rechecked her x-rays at the 72 hour mark. And those infiltrates that were in her lungs had improved. Her lungs were not normal, but they were substantially improved from where they were previously. And so that all gives us a good indicator not only does she feel well and she just looking at her feels a lot better but also we're monitoring those things on her problem list and seeing which ones we can write as resolved and we obviously don't have time nor do i want you to go into the scope of all of the medications that she was on but just as a the cliff notes version it sounds like she received some really strong and important supplemental oxygen therapy she got some really important antibiotics of course fluids uh, one thing that's always challenging to treat in cats is pain and knowing what pain medications to use. Was she on a pain medication? Yeah, she was on buprenorphine, um, which I thought she tolerated really well. If it was something that we had thought that she wasn't gonna be comfortable on that, I would have reached for something like fentanyl or something stronger, but she was really good with that. And that was also something that she continued for a few days, even when she went home to deal with the mouth injury. Excellent. Besides the fluids, oxygen therapy, buprenorphine and antibiotics, was there any other medications or therapies that she was treated with? Yeah, so she was also treated with GI supportive medications. So we commonly will give pests, if they are going through anything traumatic, we'll give them some version of an anti-nausea medication um, because we don't always know 100% 
if pets are nauseous, if they're not actively vomiting, but especially a cat that went through something like she went through, there's a good chance she could have been nauseous. So she was on anti-nausea medications and she was also on some gastroprotectant medications because again, we didn't know how much of this, the chemicals from the detergent she had potentially swallowed, but also the GI tract is a sort is an organ system that can be affected by thermal injury or heat injury. And so those all reasons we wanted to cover all of our bases, even though she wasn't initially presenting with GI signs as her clinical picture. It sounds like Dr. Hamilgram, she was hospitalized for uh, 48 to 72 hours with these medications and therapies, and she actually turned the corner. This sounds like a good news story. Is that how I should be receiving it? Because in my mind, I'm sending Misty this healing energy, and I'm thinking about her in a very good news recovery fashion. Did Misty fully recover? She did. She went uh, home, and she came back like about a week later for recheck x-rays. Her mouth had completely healed. She was she was back to being her normal self at home. And so it ended up being a very good ending for a story that I wasn't 100% sure was going to have the best ending. Oh, my goodness. This was such an incredible journey. But there are two really important questions. Listen, I'm sure there are more, right? But two really important questions are, number one, is there anything that her family and Misty need to be concerned about in the future from the exposure of the detergent, the exposure of the washing machine? Is there anything long-term effects for Misty? Luckily, no. Um, So luckily, after she showed us that she was in the recovery period and even on her recheck, all of her blood work, her lungs, everything had gone back to normal. So thankfully, I, I don't anticipate for her to have any long-term damage from this. Of course, you know, we talk about the principles that we practice every day is not only treatment and not only getting gaining knowledge on how to treat, as you say, the toughest of the tough, the worst of the worst, the sickest of the sick, but we also stress prevention. Is there anything that you could talk to about all the cat lovers out there, all the pet parents out there, just all the veterinarians out there? Is there anything that you can think of how we can prevent other cats from having Misty's experience in the future? Yeah, I think that while we have, there's lots of literature and there's lots of information about cats that have gone through dryers and that cats love to sleep in dryers because they're warm and you take the clothes out and they love that, that sort of thing. But I think that one of, it's always a big safety point that we always want to discuss with pet parents is really like the washer or the dryer shouldn't be seen ever as a place that's a safe place for pets to be. And so it's something that we always encourage for washers and dryers to always be kept closed at all times and not so that pets don't perceive this as being a place that's fun to nap or sleep. And so in further talking to Misty's family, her and her other housemate, her other cat that was in the house, both of them loved to sleep in the washer and the dryer. Um, they were front loading and so they were easy able to climb in and climb out of them. And so it was something that had been known in the house that the cats did like to sleep in the washer and dryer, but they um, had always sort of known that they looked before they put clothes in and, and someone didn't look that one time. And so I think the biggest takeaway is really that washers and dryers really should never be a place that pets should consider a nice place to sleep and that it should always be something that really care is given that they never are allowed to really get in them for the fact that it it could have ended much differently for Misty and luckily she made it through this but it it really should be not be something that we should do everything we can to prevent 
our pets from sleeping or resting or playing in washers and dryers. I love that. We should do everything in our power to prevent pets from resting or playing in washers and dryers. Those are certainly words to live by. Dr. Hamilgram, do me a favor with this good news story and how your delicate and, and very articulate way of going through that case step by step by step. Please do me a favor and let everyone know where they can find you, where they can hear more from you. So again, I practice in New Jersey, so hopefully no one listening to us ever needs to have their pets seen, but very I do true, practice yes, in New Jersey. Very true, yes. <laughs> um, but I also own a company with another criticalist of myself. I met her in my residency. She's amazing. She's in the Philadelphia area, but um, we own a company. It's called Intensivets. Um, it was taken as a pun off of, in human medicine, a person that practices what I do is called an intensivist, um, and so we're intensivists. Um, But we do have an Instagram page and there are blogs for people to read. There's courses for veterinarians to take. And there's always some like fun things popping up on our Instagram that pet parents and fellow veterinarians can learn from. So um, we are on Facebook, Instagram. So we're always up there with some new ideas. And also there are on Vet Candy. um, I did a toxicology master course. There's also a few courses on infectious diseases on dogs and cats. And there was a fun case about dogs and urinary accidents in the house that were all on Vet Candy. So not only on my own website, but there's also lots of other content on Vet Candy that I'm also on. That's incredible. This podcast is powered by Vet Candy. Intensivets, is there an intensivets.com? There is. Yep, intensivets.com. Intensivets.com, And please, one more time, intensivets.com. You can find them on Facebook, Instagram, and of course, Vet Candy. Dr. Hamilgram, I am just so delighted and honored to have the chance to talk with you today. This has been a fantastic mystery. To me, it was mysterious because I didn't know if Misty was actually going to make it through that traumatic event. I knew that she was in amazing hands and incredible hands and most skilled, knowledgeable hands as you as an intensivist, an intensivist and a criticalist. But at the same time, after you go through a washing machine, after you go through an entire washing machine, it's surprising that anyone any living being could live through something like that. So this was truly a mystery and I'm just so happy and honored that you were absolutely able to join us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And we'll talk, Thank hopefully you so much. we can do a round two. Yeah, absolutely, anytime. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. There you have it, folks. Incredible case about Misty, where we had a, a cat who just wandered into a washing machine just for a quiet, safe place, and it turned out to be anything but and Dr. Hamilgram sort of artfully navigated Misty through that re- recovery journey, and we had a really good outcome. And one of the words to live by: washing machine and dryer should never be considered safe places for pets to play or rest. That's amazing stuff. Please join us for the next episode of Vet Mysteries Podcast. And until next time, just remember: there's nothing stronger than the human-animal bond. Please take care of your pets. 
and each other. Thank you to the good folks at Credelio for Cats for sponsoring the show. Vet Candy. Vet Candy. Vet Candy. It's Vet Candy Radio.